0: Welcome back to another episode of Extra Innings, a Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm Matt Breen and I'm joined today by Scott Lauber and Bob Brookover. And once again, guys, we're digging into the YouTube vault, trying to find some classic Phillies games to watch to pass the time as we wait for baseball to eventually return. And today we watched the final game of the 2007 regular season. Phillies clinched the NLEs title that day against the Nationals. But they were really playing almost two games in one day. They, they were playing against the Nationals, obviously, in Philadelphia, but then they were scoreboard watching the Mets and the Marlins game up at Shea. And it's just – it's a day that encapsulates an, a crazy run that season, but also gives you a glimpse into what's going to happen in the future. It's just – to me, this is the day that started, you know, a, a really historic run in Phillies baseball.
1: Yeah, we've talked about uh, some of these games that we've done uh, as being, you know, we talked about the 1980 Game 5 NL- NLCS clincher as being the most important game in uh, in Philly's history. We talked about last week the Matt Stairs game in the 08 uh, NLCS kind of being uh, the defining game of, of that playoff run. I think this, in a lot of ways, as you said, kind of foreshadows what we're going to get um, It's it's you got to think back in your mind, because now you think of that team and you think of them in a certain way because they got over the top in 2008, won the World Series, got back in 2009, won the division again in 2010 and 2011. And we now think of this as this golden era in Philly's history. But I kind of had to remind myself that this team we were watching at the end of the seven season, you know, they'd gone through. Two or three years in a row of nearly missing the playoffs, uh, they were seven back with 17 to play. Memorably, uh, in this particular season, uh, they weren't accomplished yet at, at much of anything. And um, you know, in your mind, I think you were sort of thinking, "How are they going to blow this?" You know, "How are they going to come up just short this time?" Um, it w- would have been so Phillies of that kind of of that era, oh four, oh five, oh six, to near to just miss. And, and the fact that they win this game, they do it so convincingly. The Mets get stomped in New York. Um, there was drama, but it was a little anticlimactic, uh, I found, toward the end because they weren't going to blow it, and they were going to get over the top. And this was different than anything the Phillies had experienced in, what, 14 years, really, since 1993. So um, if you think it, of it in those terms, it was really kind of a – uh, an emotional sort of um, dramatic in that sense day for, for the organization.
2: Well, that's true except until they went to the playoffs and got squashed by the Rockies in three games. But, sure. But, but getting over the hump was very important, but then playoff, the playoff uh, performance was so disappointing. I was seeing it all from a different perspective. It was a great day in New York for me um, <laughs> because I was covering the Eagles at the time. And, you know, the, the, the celebration was happening in Philadelphia and the hangover was happening in the Meadowlands that day because the Eagles got crushed by the Giants. I think McNabb got sacked like 17,000 times. And that was actually a prelude to a Giants team that went on to win the Super Bowl against the yes. Patriots team. That was, so, so I didn't even see any of this game until um, last night and I finished up watching it this morning. So this is really my first experience with this game. Um, I do remember, uh, following it as we we're driving up the turnpike, uh, to see, to, you know, following it in, what time did that game start? Did it start at one? One
0: 35,
1: one
2: Yeah. Well, I wasn't listening to it, but I mean, you're following it, but no, we were following it driving up the turnpike. That's right. Cause it, the Eagles, um, Giants game was a night game that night. Um, so I, rem- I remember following it that way, but this is the first time I, I really watched it and it, and it was. I remember that season. I mean, I I had been off the Phillies beat that t- by that point by for like four years, I think. Um, and I think they actually allude to it in the telecast that their their pre uh, their season going into their promotional thing was goosebumps. This is yes. going to be the year of goosebumps. And I remember calling my former Inquirer colleague Jim Salisbury and say, I think it should have been gro- goose droppings, or you know, or I don't I don't think I use the word goose droppings. They should change the... <laughs> promo because they started four and 11. I'm like, this, this is just awful. Uh, but yeah, but you know, it was the, the game itself. This, that season, it was an incredible season for this team. And I can remember going late in that season to uh, a Mets Phillies game when, when the Mets were in full collapse mode, we, we got invited by uh, Nova care had a box and they invited all the football writers over to sit in their box and watch the Phillies Mets game and the Mets, the Phillies beat them that night, and that, that by that point, that ballpark on a nightly basis
0: for the last two weeks of that season
2: was just electric. I mean, it was an incredible place to be.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, watching that Eagles game that night, and I could care less that the Eagles were getting pummeled. I was just so elated of what what happened the day, that earlier that day. And I think we have to start with the scoreboard watching, which now, now we follow scores in, in such a different way than we did – just you know in 2007 there really was no way to know what was going on in new york and besides watching the right field scoreboard people had cell phones but there was no iphones i remember my brother had his not even a smartphone it was a flip phone that had scores on it but and we were following it that way but really the best way to do it was just to watch the scoreboard and when the score went up seven nothing it's so loud in the field in the stadium that Chris Wheeler actually had to stop his introduction of Jamie Moyer's stats because of how loud the crowd was.
1: Yeah. I remember uh, having lunch. Uh, I was eating lunch uh, in the media dining room and uh, the Mets game had just started. And by the time I left that dining room, uh, they were down, you know, four or five, nothing. And it was seven, nothing by the time the, the, Moyer delivered his first pitch, and it was surreal because you had Tom Glavin on the mound that day for the Mets, and you just expected that, you know, and they were playing the Marlins, and the Marlins were, you know, finished in last that year uh, in the NL East, and you just sort of figured, you know, the Mets were going to win this one. They were at home, and as bad as they'd been uh, the entire month, and, you know, th- there are two sides of this coin because I've always said, I mean, it took a an epic collapse on the Mets' part, but the Phillies also really had to play their rear ends off in order to be in position to win the division. They had to go like thirteen and four down the stretch, and 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 so the Mets, you know, would have overcome this if the Phillies hadn't played great down the stretch. And um, you know, you just sort of figured we were headed for either a, a, a playing game on that Monday, or or the Mets were going to figure out a way to to, to beat the, the awful Marlins. And and here it was seven nothing, and the Phillies just it was like don't screw it up. Because the Mets have teed it up for you, it was really weird, and the crowd was going crazy. I've never seen a pregame like that where you know guys are out there stretching in the outfield, and you know, I mean, it was and it was like a game was going on right there in front of you. So it was it was really really incredible, um, you know, to sort of see that going on before the game.
2: The, the hindsight irony to the to the whole thing is that Cody Ross was yeah. was such a big part of that. The Marlins beating the Mets that day. And later on he would become such a big part in, in ruining, uh, Philly seasons, <laughs> but he's, but he, that day he, he got this whole thing started for the Marlins in that first inning.
1: You know, we can't have a, a scene like that again, either a pregame. I mean, as long as baseball stays the way it is, because now, uh, they start all the games on the final day at the same time, right? They're all three thirty starts. Back then it was staggered a little bit. So you had some games at night. I think the, um, I, you know, the Padres um, and Rockies who were fighting for a wild card spot uh, and playing meaningful games that day, both started, you know, on the West coast uh, after the Phillies had started. I think the Rockies even played at night. Now they all start at three 30. I think they changed that after 2011, that crazy finish that year, but now you'd be starting at the same time. And, um you know you, you might still be as you said matt like we 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 follow games differently than we would before you're not gonna be uh be hanging on every scoreboard change the way you would have 12 13 years ago but um you, you're just never gonna have that scene again um unless baseball goes back to a different a different schedule on the final day
2: you know you you had the pregame scene and, and you'll probably never have a post-game scene like they had again before i mean before we started here, we were talking about how the interviews in the clubhouse weren't the same, but the, the scene on the field after the game, really Brett Myers um, yeah, spurred it on uh, was, I don't think you'll ever see that again where all so much time elapsed after the game. So few people left and then the players just came out and decided we're going to party with the fans. So that was such, such a cool scene too.
0: Yeah. And I think that was, that goes into what Scott was talking about earlier about, what this day meant and I know they they ran into a buzzsaw of you know in the NLDS with the Rockies but but this was this started in 2001 with when they they fell apart at the end of that season and then in 03 and 05 and 06 so there was and a lot of those guys Pat Burrell, Jimmy Rollins were around for all of that Brett Myers came up in 02 so this was bubbling for six years to get to this point and this was really almost their World Series and And that's why the celebration is just over the top. They parade around the warning track. They got a fire hose out. It was just absolutely (laughs) insane. It was almost crazier than their celebration in 08, really. I mean, it's just – it's absolutely – for a division title. But that's what – it was more than a division title. And I remember just as a kid, I was in kindergarten in 93. And and I remember a lot of 93, went to a lot of games. But I I didn't live the ups and downs in the 93 season. I was just – you know excited to watch the games and then so my up and down of following a team started probably around like 2000 I guess when you're in middle school and the Phillies were average or they were terrible for a lot of that time and I never could imagine them making the playoffs just like the Eagles like, I don't think anyone you couldn't imagine the Eagles winning a Super Bowl until they won the Super Bowl it's like I couldn't imagine the Phillies just making the playoffs until they made the playoffs and so when they made the playoffs it was like Holy crap, like that that's amazing and of course the players are going to they they were in the same mindset. They couldn't believe that they were in the playoffs. And I remember Chase Utley said um when he left the Phillies he ranked his top 10 moments in the in his Phillies career and this was actually number 1 because this to him meant more than the World Series, which is just really incredible.
1: It really did and what you you think about it in these terms. So now it's been uh now that the playoff drought is nine years, um, or it, it would be nine years if they play this year and don't make it, I mean they had gone fourteen at this point. So, uh, if you think it's been a long time now since the Phillies made the playoffs, um, you know, then then think about then. Uh, it's it's almost twice that. So yeah, no, it was no doubt it was a it was a um, it was an emotional and crazy celebration. It was the first one I'd ever covered. Uh, it was my second year of covering Major League Baseball. I, you know, they didn't make the playoffs in 06. Um, so it was my first sort of post-game celebration thing in the clubhouse. I went through it again with the Phillies in 08 uh, a few times, in 09 a few times, uh, in uh, 13 with the Red Sox a few times when they won the World Series. And this was definitely, I think, the most over-the-top. Uh, and it went on the longest also. I mean, normally you've got, even after the World Series, you get a pretty good celebration and then um, – and then people want to, players want to go to wherever they're going to go to continue it um, outside of the ballpark. And and this was not only did it involve the fans and going out on the field multiple times, multiple waves of of players going out on the field to share it with the fans, but it just it seemed like it lasted forever in the clubhouse too. I'm glad it was a Sunday, uh, and we didn't have to worry about running upstairs to uh, hit a deadline uh, because we were able to. Um, see it and experience it and tell the story a little bit more completely. Uh, because if this was a night game in the middle of the week, uh, you know, there would be so much of that color that, that we never got to see. As I,
2: as I did last week, I went back and read your cover, Scott. You could tell you, you had time to write this time. <laughs> and, you, yes. you, and you actually, your stuff was great. Um, it, and it was
1: a six, one game too. So it, right, like you could, right. but your, you your know, stuff,
2: there were your stuff was really great that day. It was talking about how, you know, they started four and 11. They had this r- rotation, or this pitching staff with a ERA almost 5 you know and just all the things they they had to overcome to for this to happen I mean this was this was by no means a great team I mean you start looking at the back end of that bullpen the guys coming out Jose Mesa was on the last line, legs of his career and you know it, it wasn't a great team by any stretch at least pitching wise I mean it was really a weak team pitching wise
1: Yeah, and I guess let's – you know, we can sort of set the tone for this because I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot about Jimmy Rollins for the rest of this podcast and his role not only in this game but in that season, and this was, of course, the year that he uh, began it all in January by calling the Phillies the team to beat, uh, which was utterly ridiculous when you think about it, given all that we've talked about in terms of how they've never been able to get over the top, but uh, years later – Years later, Jimmy has talked about this and what made him go and say that. And he, you know, he has said that the reason why he sat there that day in January and said, We're the team to beat is that they had just traded for Freddie Garcia and they had just gotten Adam Eaton. And it was actually the pitching that he thought was going to make them so powerful that year. He kind of looked at their rotation on paper and he said, We've got the best team. And when you think about it now and how it played out, I mean, Freddie Garcia won one game and was done by June with an injury. Adam Eaton had an ERA of almost six and a half. Uh, Brett Myers, who was in the rotation when the season started, became the closer uh, in May. And they were able to sort of patch it together by calling up Kyle Kendrick from AA and trading for Kyle Loesch. And, and bringing up J.D. Durbin. And you, you just think about how they got through it as a pitching staff. And we now know that it wasn't the pitching at all. It was the offense that, that got them through. And, um, but that was the impetus for him saying where the team to beat was he believed in their pitching. And um, that was truly the weak link of that team. You, you have
2: a thing in your game story, actually, about, which I found really interesting, I'd never seen before, about Jimmy Rollins admitting there was one point in that season when all those guys were going down all those pictures you just mentioned were going down and he actually went to Abraham Nunez and said, Oh, but this might in the middle this, of a game, this, right? this might be yeah. a rebuilding year. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. The, in the middle of a game on the mound was like, uh, 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 "Dude, uh, this isn't good. Right. So that was, that was, that was funny. I just wanted to, so, so 07 was your first year on the beat. Second. second so second year on the beat. Okay. So you covered a winning season in 06 and 07, right. And then you covered the team through 2009 Yes, And then you covered the Red Sox from what? 10 to what? Uh, uh, 18, uh 17. 10 through 17. So you saw two world championships there? Or one. Two, or, w- one. Okay, Thir- 13. Okay, then they won. So you covered the World Series there. But they had winning teams every year, right? Uh,
1: No, not every year. They had some last-place finishes. Okay. Bobby okay. V.
2: The Bobby oh, that's right. The Bobby year. V. Year. There were,
1: There were, I think, two or three last-place finishes. They either – they either finished first or last basically every year that I that I was there. So
2: so much of this Phillies run from 07 to 11, um, at least the first part of it. <clears throat> all I'm thinking the whole time is I'm what was wrong with me? Because <laughs> I've covered the Phillies for at least a few games, starting in eighty-four, which was my junior year in college, but really from eighty-eight on. Twenty-seven of those years since nineteen eighty-four. I've twenty-seven of how many ever many. I covered games, Phillies games, and for 26 of those, I was part of the beat or part of the coverage team. Um, and I've seen exactly five winning seasons and three postseasons in 27 years. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've seen a lot of bad baseball, anyway. That was my point. But Matt, get us back on well, track here.
0: Yeah, obviously, oh Matt. <laughs> obviously, here. it was the the day they they clinched the NL East, but it was also the day that Jimmy Rollins secured himself an MVP with his. And, you know, it starts with the first inning, he gets on, he steals second, he steals third, and then his 20th triple of the season as well, and his last at-bat of the season. I, it's just such a, you know, one, probably one of his his greatest career moments was, was that triple.
1: Yeah, I, I'll give a quick shout-out to Jason Bergman, the national starter that day from Manel high school. That's my high school. And uh, unfortunately, Harry Callis called it man He did. <laughs> which, uh, he's not alone. He's not alone. Lots of lots of people have done that. But, uh, yeah, so one of the, the very few guys I know of who went from Manalapan High School to the big leagues was on the mound that day. And, yeah, Rollins was, I mean, he was the story the whole season. Um, and, I mean, there were some numbers that just jump off the page. Uh, most extra base hits by a National League shortstop ever that year and that record still stands 88 extra base hits that year i looked it up and the only uh the only shortstop with more extra base hits in a in the season was a rod in 96 uh and uh so jimmy has the record for an nl shortstop um they mentioned several times after the triple which was his 20th of the year that there are only four guys ever in the 20 doubles 20 triples 20 homers 20 steals club willie mays uh Curtis Granderson, Frank Schulte, and Jimmy Rollins, and it gets better than that. He's the only guy ever to have 30 doubles, 20 triples, 30 homers, 40 steals in a season. Um it was just a it was just an unbelievable year. I mean he he and and he 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 nailed it. I mean he said that they were gonna win and then they won and he was the best player. So I mean that's kind of what his legacy I think will always be
0: Will always be tied to. And he wasn't even an all-star. You know, he really he really turned it on in the second wow.
2: half. Yeah. It, to me, just the twenty triples is an amazing thing. I think three players in this century have had twenty triples. It's it's funny if you go back and look before nineteen twenty-five, there were a bunch of guys who would hit a bunch of triples. I'm I'm guessing they didn't have fences back then, so the ball would roll roll and they'd be able to get triples. But I I don't know for some reason there were a lot more triples. The the record is. The last guy to have more than, uh, or the record is 20, a guy named Chief, I think, Colson, had 36 in 1912 is the record, but there's been four double digit triple seasons uh, since 1950, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and he, you know, he was just the, the, the way he stole bases, I mean, it was unbelievable because he never got thrown out. I mean that I think he was what 47 46 was his final total that year. I think um, so. and he got thrown out like six times he, he never got thrown out. Um it was you know he that season Derek he, he he's not Derek Jeter, but I'm not sure Derek Jeter ever had a better season than Jimmy Rollins had that year.
0: I love one is when the ball goes to the right field corner and he's he's rounding second to go to third. Did I lose you? Burrow. Uh, Rowan grabs Burl to tell him, like you know, Rollins is going for a triple. It's like Burl was just cheering and, and almost as a fan for, like, wasn't even able to see that Rollins was going for a third. It was just, it was a neat shot that right. I don't know Ro- why they even had the camera there, but they did, and it, and it worked out. It was just such a funny little moment.
2: Yeah, yeah it was. Rowan's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, wait,
0: wait, 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 we're not done here. And
2: that was. That was great. That was really great.
0: So we talked about how this game was really the. It encapsulated a crazy month, and and I think you start that at the um the four game sweep of the Mets, which the fourth game of that I, I wanted to do on on a podcast, but I couldn't find that game on YouTube, just because I thought that game was just so ridiculous. And we talked about that was how... the uh,
1: that was the game where Uguchi scores the winning yes. run, right? Yeah. Okay, and, so uh, so Worth really quick, me...
0: second and third against Wagner.
1: Yeah. So really quick, let me just say about that game. So uh, the the question that I always ask uh, about the 07 season is, when did you start to think that this might be possible? And I remember a lot of players, even after, I think they swept the Mets twice uh, in the final month, once at home, once at Shea. And I remember even after the sweep at Shea, a lot of players saying, you know, let's face it, like we're competing for the wild card here. Like even a lot of the Phillies thought, that that was the way they were going to make the playoffs, not by winning the division. But I was talking to Chris coast um, recently, and we were talking about Oh seven. And he said, he actually started to believe after that sweep at home, because <laughs> Paul Leduca made some kind of a comment after that game about like, uh, look at the standings, like we're going to be fine.
0: He said, and, uh, he said, we'll, we'll see who's dancing. They might be dancing. Yeah. Now, but we'll see who's dancing in September or something. Exa- exactly. And Coast said that, like, that, that penetrated the Phillies'
1: clubhouse. Like, they heard about that. They fixated on that. I didn't know that at the time, that they, were that, that they were that wrapped up in that. But they were well aware of what he said and how the Mets felt. And he really felt it kind of took off from there. So it's interesting. I've never heard anyone, and maybe it's revisionist because it's 13 years later, but I, I really hadn't heard anyone say that that early in the month and I think that was right around September 1st yep. that that's when they started to believe that, that they could do this. I, I think at the time, I think it felt a little later than that. But anyway, we could talk about that. Like, when did you feel like it was
0: going to happen? But anyhow, yeah, but it was <laughs> such a great ri- rivalry between the two teams. And it went all season. Like, It started with team to beat with Jimmy Rollins. And then I remember at Shea, Burrell uh, hit a late homer off Wagner. And Wagner said he, he threw it in his, his path. That Burrell just has yes. a one pass swing, yep. and then Burrell takes them deep again in the the uh, the four game sweep, the crazy that crazy game, and there was I know there was a comment after that. It was just like a constant back and forth between the two that that then you know really went into the next season too. But it was just that's what made this so compelling is that they chased down the Mets and that both teams hated each other. So it had so many elements of you know make this a compelling story. Um. I was at, so the, the Friday night game, Hamels pitched. They won, they beat the Nationals. I went to that game with my buddy. We we go home. And I'm like, and we won so many games that year. You know, it was just insane. And I was like, well, they can clinch the division the next day because they could have got, they could have clinched on Saturday with a win and a match loss. So I, like, well, we got to go down to Saturday. So we slept out Friday night. Um, outside of Citizen Bank <laughs> Park to get standing room tickets because the whole weekend was sold out. We sleep outside, we get tickets, we go to the game that afternoon. They lose. But if you remember what happened in New York, the Mets killed, crushed the Marlins, but there was like a scrap at third base between Jose Reyes and some Marlins that there was the benches cleared and there was a little, not a fight, but a little benches clearing thing that made me trigger like, the, the Marlins might stink, but they have something to play for now going into Sunday. So, it wasn't a total loss. We go home that night. And we're like, well, we just swept out for tickets Friday night and the Saturday we, and to see them clinch. They didn't. They're going to clinch possibly Sunday. We got we to gotta go back. So, we went back Saturday night, swept outside Citizens Bank Park again. We get standing room only tickets for Sunday's game. And then, in between that, we bought one game playoff tickets because if they t- if they both won Sunday, there would be a game Monday at, at Citizens Bank Park between the Mets and the Phillies. And We bought those tickets, but as we know, we didn't need those tickets. So we, you know, we we had standing room only for Sunday, and it was just for me as a I was a freshman at Temple, and uh, it's really like that was like the peak of the fanhood right there, and it was it was just such an awesome moment that game to see them win and just really because of what happened that entire month
1: that's awesome yeah no it it it, it was it totally um I don't know when I sort sort of thought that this could that this could happen that they could pull this out I definitely know it wasn't as early as the beginning of that month and I, I clearly remember guys in the in the clubhouse at Shea talking about after they they swept the Mets there, talking about, like, the wild card still being um, the most realistic way that they could get in. And the Mets just seemed to lose in every way you could imagine. I remember, like, going into the clubhouse after games, Phillies games, and the Mets were still playing. And I remember seeing them get walked off. I remember seeing them, like, you know, lose big leads. And I remember just thinking, and like and Phillies seemed to kind of get into it more and more and more um as the month went on, like, oh my God, like not only are we playing great, but they're gonna they're gonna let us back into this thing it was um and of course, the way it culminates on that final day, I mean, the Mets just getting absolutely trounced as the Phillies take the field um this this had to happen uh and and we talked about Rollins setting the tone for the season, he sets the tone in the game, you know, I wrote down. This was his Ricky Henderson moment right here. You know, he singles, steals, second, steals, third, and scores on a sack fly. And Harry says he did that by himself. And it was just so – it was just such a good uh, – it was such an appropriate kind of way to get things going
0: because that was the way the year went. It was Jimmy leading the way. Did it strike you? Because we, we just watched the 08 Stairs game, and now we're watching this a week later. Doesn't this team seem a lot younger than that team? Yes. And, it, it's, and just I, a, it's just a year, but it's just for some reason, they just seem so much younger than the 08 team.
2: I think that goes back to just that they hadn't, what Scott talked about earlier, would, they just hadn't accomplished anything. You know, they hadn't, they had been close. They had been a good team. They were a team everybody respected and, and somewhat feared, especially offensively, because you could see Howard and Utley and Rollins as the core, uh, but they hadn't gotten over the hump yet. So that's what made them seem so young and it, it probably had something to do with it, with their uh failure in the, the playoffs because they weren't ready to take it to the next step at that point.
1: Think of how deep they were too. the depth on the bench was amazing. I mean, you had, you had Tadahito Oguchi who was a regular with the white Sox until he gets traded over to the Phillies uh, the day after, I think Utley broke his hand. You've got uh, Michael Bourne, who I realized at the time is a young player, but goes on to have, you know, Goes on to be an everyday guy with the Astros after they trade him for Brad Lidge. Jason Worth didn't even get in this game. Chris Coast is on the bench. Uh, Rod Barajas, who'd been a starting catcher, who I know is is just despised in Philly. He he was on the bench. I mean, (laughs) they just had they had like they had so much depth and so much talent that that uh, that it was it was kind of incredible that they only won they won eighty nine games and they're the only. They're the last NLEs team to win a division with less than 90 wins, and the only other time it had been done since the 81 strike was the Braves in 88. I mean in uh, in 01 with 88 wins. So, like, they won 89 games and won the division, and they had a loaded team. It goes Uh, back to pitching, I guess.
2: I'm curious because I I don't remember this because I was covering the Eagles. What was it like, Scott, the day – they lost 12 to nothing to the Rockies at home to fall seven back mm-hmm. of the Mets yeah. at that point in September 12th. Would you remember that clubhouse that day? Which day when they, they, they lost on September 12th, they lost to the Rockies 12, nothing. Yes. And they had been beaten up the day before by the Rockies too. And they fell seven behind it. That's the day they fell seven behind the Mets. Yeah. Do you, I don't do you, do you remember that clubhouse at all? I'd,
1: I'd have to go back and look and see like what I wrote. Um, Cause I don't have a, like a clear memory of it. I just think, you know, it was probably, it was probably the feeling of like, th- this was a road to nowhere. Like they, it wasn't going to be their year. And, you know, you sort of felt that way. I think for, for certainly going into September, I mean, they sweep the Mets and you're like, that's nice. <laughs> you know, like maybe they're finally building some momentum, but you know, you go, you go four months into the season and they really hadn't, hadn't gotten going yet or kind of gotten in gear yet. And I maybe there was like a last nail in the coffin kind of feeling to it because they fell seven back and seven back with 17 to play. You're really running out of time. But it probably just, you know, it was probably just more of that, hey, this is not going to be their year kind of feeling. They were eight and a half out on June 1st. They spent a total of four days in first place all year. I mean, so it was really sort of a road to nowhere kind of feeling for much of the year until – I would say the middle of the month. I think once they swept the Mets at Shea and you realized how badly the Mets were playing also, it was like, uh, okay, I mean, maybe this is, we're at least going to have an interesting finish.
2: It, It was It's amazing that they went from seven games back on September 12th. By September 18th, they were, and that includes the Mets sweep, but then they went to St. Louis and won a few games. Then by September 18th, they were only at a game and a half out. Uh
0: yeah, it's it just, happened fast. It, it really did. It, it it really did. It's funny. They're, I'm looking at the paper from that day, and it's on the front is wild card standings. So the NL East wasn't even a thought. You know, when they're no. seven games back, the 17 to play, it, it's not like people even knew that because they really just knew, well, you know, they're two games back, of the Padres for the wild card. It wasn't even the NL East for the pipe dream at that point
1: you know you also go through august and chase and utley breaks his hand right he gets hit by that pitch by john lannan and i mean it really i remember that clearly because utley gets hurt and you think okay now it's now it's over i mean there's no way that they can i think it was august or late july mm-hmm. i mean there's there's no way that they can that they can compete without that guy in the lineup and then the next day they go and get Tadahito Oguchi, who was a pretty good player and i remember talking to pat gillick the following spring in 2008 this is like a, uh, like one of my best Pat Gillick stories, and we were talking at spring training, and somehow I was talking to him about infield depth and you know the things you talk about in spring training, and and he was talking about how difficult it is to get good good middle infield depth, and I said, well, you didn't really didn't have much trouble last year. You got a Gucci the day after Utley went down, and he said, well, I think that's because Kenny Williams felt bad that he screwed us on Freddie Garcia, you know that that Garcia was never right, and Kenny Williams might have known it. And I remember thinking, like, that's great information, Pat. I wish I'd had that a year earlier. Um, you know, when you traded for a Gucci, and and it seemed so easy that you were able to get that guy. I um,
2: I just want to bring this point up. So that year, you know, we talked about their great offense. Uh, Aaron Rowan hit three hundred and nine that year. And We haven't even mentioned him yet, and what a, how big he was. So Aaron Aaron Rowan hit three hundred and nine that year. Utley hit three thirty two, even and had a hundred RBIs, even though he's hurt. So those two guys hit 300, and that's 2007. I'm going to give you a little trivia here. One player has hit 300 for the Phillies since then. Can you guys name him? Ben Ben Revere. Oh, that is a good answer. Wow, Ding,
1: ding, 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 ding. (laughs)
2: <laughs> In 2014, yep. and here's a little fact Sorry, about. Sorry, It's Leiter. amazing that That's that, right. that only one guy uh, has done that. Well, only well, only two, well, two other <laughs> only two other times has a guy hit 290 for the Hi. Phillies first season. And who who would that be?
0: Caesar, since then, hit, hit
2: 290? Hernandez. <laughs> they, we, we guys are good, man. They, he hit 294 twice since then. Nobody else has even hit 290 wow. for the Phillies. You need better trivia and, questions, Bob. Uh, well, I guess I do, but that's still an amazing stat. It is. We're it talking definitely 13 is. Thirteen years, and um, just a little side note here: Ben Revere hit three hundred six that in two thousand and fourteen. He's the only Philly who, who qualified for the batting title to ever hit three hundred and not have a seven hundred OPS. He had a six eighty six OPS. Wow, <laughs> wow. So those are some. Those are my stats. Are my stat contributions to our little podcast today.
0: So we talked about though, the,
2: Even though my trivia question stink, thanks a lot, Brain. I would <laughs> stayed up all night working on that. You destroyed it in 13 seconds.
0: The importance of this game, the 08, and it's really who knows if Charlie Manuel is the manager in 08 if they if this doesn't happen. Yeah. The new general manager and he didn't hire Charlie. So that's a it's a fantastic uh, you know, what if does cause Charlie
1: was in the last year of his contract. They let him sort of play that out. Um, and Pat Gillick consists these days that he never never crossed his mind that that he was going to replace Charlie either after 06 or at any point during 07. But you do remember that between 06 and 07, they hire, you know, Davey Lopes. They hire Art Howe, who Art never Howe, actually briefly. coached a game for them. They hire or, Timmy Williams to be on the bench. You know, they hire this sort of college of, of coaches that had been managers, and it definitely had that feeling that maybe Charlie was on – shaky ground if if they don't get over the hump and finally get in the playoffs so we'll never know I mean you can take Gillick at his word that he never seriously considered it because the players responded the way they did and they because of how universally beloved Charlie was in that clubhouse you could really sort of see it in the post game Charlie just gets totally totally drenched in beer and champagne I mean they had such affection for him um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a great what if to whether he survives if, if they don't make the playoffs.
2: Yeah. The narrative is completely, the, the Charlie Manuel narrative is so different if they don't win that game and get to the playoffs. You're right. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's an amazing, um, so many people wanted him fired. So many people were annoyed by his news conferences because he wasn't, you know, Charlie was never the great communicator in terms of the way he spoke you know, and his syntax and all that. But it's it's just an amazing thing that it's become that Charlie Charlie Manuel is now the the legend of all managers in Philadelphia Phillies history. And and this day probably has as much to do with if not more than anything.
0: So who is the uh, who's the star of the game for this game? Let's wrap this up. Well it's gotta be Jimmy, um but uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't remember Ryan Howard
1: having the great game that he had. He had an unbelievable game. He hits the home run. He, uh, beat, he the drives in a, beat the shift to drive in a run. Three RBIs in the game. Uh, so huge game for Howard. And I think you could make a case that he was the star of the game. Rollins was certainly the star of the season and the, the number one narrative for everything. Uh, but, um, and I'd go with Rollins. But, uh, I mean, Howard is, Howard is definitely
2: compelling here. I am gonna go with Ryan Howard. He 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 the home run he hits just puts the icing on the he he had the he had the huge two run single mm-hmm. to put them uh up uh three to what was it, three nothing at that point? Yeah, three to put them up two but I as I'm watching it I'm like I go and look and I always had a problem with Ryan Howard and Ward. Yeah, it just it, it was just the stat that never correlated for for Ryan Howard. He had a he had 47 home runs that year and I think 136 RBIs and his 3.1 WAR ranked ninth among Major League first basemen. Um, somehow he just WAR was not kind to to Ryan Howard, but it should have been a lot kinder because those in those three seasons, his first three seasons in the big leagues, and really his first six seasons, but really, but his first three. I don't care what war said to me, he, he was the guy as feared as Albert, maybe Albert Pujols might be the only guy and maybe a rod too, but Ryan Howard. And that is in that conversation with those two guys at that point in his career.
0: I'm going to give you an off the, off the wall one. I think wheels listening to the broadcast and Chris Wheeler, just like, and that's what we we watched them last week where we didn't see him until the post-game celebration. And now here he is in the booth with Harry, and I think we almost like, like I, I, at least for me, like I forget how good Chris Wheeler was yeah. at, his, at his job. And I, I think the thing that struck out struck out to me the most was how you can see his like his love for the Phillies and his fanhood kind of squeak out at, at times when when the score goes up seven nothing. Harry Callis is talking, and you just hear Wheeler's go like like, yeah, you know, he just like he was so excited that he just had to make a noise, and it's just funny. And he he just drops in little anecdotes and insight into the game throughout. And I, that's one of my favorite parts of digging in through these old games is that you know you forget about stuff like that. And and well, it, it made me miss Sarge. Too. Sarge was great too. I thought so too. He was, he
2: he was he was he was very entertaining. Uh, you know the things he would say were. Well, this this is the most interesting thing I thought he said was they were playing the shift and the shift had not yet become what it is today. And he and he on Howard every time he came up and he's like almost unfair to play a man like that. (laughs) (laughs) And that was after his infield single. And Howard spent all day just destroying the shift. You know, with the ball he hits goes off the glove of Belliard. I think the ball over Belliard just clears his head and then. He beat the shift with a four hundred something foot home run too. Um, I'm sorry, I I interrupted you there. No, that was great. I I, I, I wanted to make two more points. You're totally, you're Um, good.
0: And I think just to wrap this up, the Philadelphia has been blessed with great baseball writers. You know, a lot of Hall of Fame baseball writers have came through this town, and I think we've been lucky to have great baseball broadcasters up to what the Phillies have now. I, I think you know, you watch with the MLB package, you bounce around. Not every team has the broadcasters that the Phillies have, and not every team had the the cast that the Phillies have had as well calling games. It's just I jotted down a, I jotted oh, down two wheels lines um, in the
1: fifth inning. You know, he just so he carries us. Wheels <laughs> and Sarge basically carry us through the middle innings when Harry's on the radio. And you know, Wheels is just so into the game right from the start, right from before the start. Um, you mentioned him sort of interrupting himself when he's talking about Jamie Moyer in the first inning, because he's got to update, you know, the, the Mets thing is going on. And in the fifth inning, when the game was still close, Wheels says, you know, this is a tense, taut, just really neat game here today. And I was like, I mean, you could just hear it in his voice, the enthusiasm and the excitement that I think most people were feeling. Uh, and it comes through with him. And then Jimmy hits the triple, and it's a great call by Wheels, And the crowd's chanting MVP. And he says, Jimmy Rollins, you are the MVP. And I thought, shades (laughs) of shades of Harry, right? Chase Utley, you are the man. Um, Just a really good call, and just the energy um, that he brought all day was was great. It really, um, having not seen this game on television um, before, um, you know, having been there and not seen it, it was great. There were callbacks to the um, late in the game. There are callbacks to 1964. And the collapse of 64 and how this is sort of the opposite of that. And Harry mentions it and Sarge mentions it. And then Wheels is like, you know, I know you guys have both seen a lot of baseball in your careers, but I lived through 64. Like, Wheels was there. He was a Phillies fan dying in 64 with that team. And I thought that came through really strong. So I agree with you. Great day for Chris Wheeler. The
2: the, the one other thing I wanted to note here is just the, the kind of things that that Matt Breen does love uh, Chris Coast mask. Yes, you, you had to, you had to love that with the Liberty yes. on it.
0: You, you had to be a huge fan of that. Who was the, the first really catcher that, to wear uh, a hockey mask? Uh, you would know Bobby, that, right? Bobby Estleia.
2: Oh. oh, oh, that's right. That's good trivia. There. See, I can't get your trivia questions. You get mine. MLB TV is promoed, which there was no MLB network yet at that point. But my favorite thing was to do, do a reference to StubHub at that point. So StubHub uh, was sold that year to eBay. It was really in its infancy still for $310 million. Two guys named Eric Baker and Jeff Floor sold it for $310 million. And just in February of this year, eBay sold it to a company called Viagogo. You, have you heard of that? Is that my pronouncing that right? I I am not I,
0: familiar I, I, but I'm sure it's it's right. Well
2: well you and you're probably going to hear about it now because eBay just sold StubHub for 4.05 billion dollars <laughs> from 3 tenths so those guys did pretty good. My Matt, Breen, like my
1: Matt Breen note, uh, I think you've tweeted about this, but even if you hadn't, I probably would have noted this as right up your alley. The swing batter batter animatronic intro. Animatronic yes. intro. <laughs> like I, I wrote, was this really 07? Because it seems older than that. Like were we doing that back then? Or this seems like it should be out of the 80s or 90s.
0: It's like a mid to, I think I'm going to say it probably started in like 05 or 06. Okay. But you came here to hear about the Phillies we gave you from the sports business news. <laughs> what, what can we not do for, for Bob Brookover, for Scott Lauber, I'm Matt Breen. Thanks for listening to another episode of extra innings, the Philly's podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. We'll have another old game for you next week. As we continue to wait for the season to somehow sometime begin, we don't know when that's going to be, but in the meantime, go to our website, inquire.com to read our coverage and subscribe to our newsletter, extra innings. Thanks for listening.